All right, Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to pick it up in verse 2. And let me say this as we get into it. As Paul comes on to the home stretch of his letter here, uh, he is giving a number of miscellaneous commands. Uh, there's actually four of them in this little short pericope today, and we're going to combine those into our three points. And let me go ahead and jump right into the first one here. In verse 2, when he says this, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So, first point, Paul's point. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And the idea that he is driving home here to continue steadfastly in prayer needs to be, or means to be consistently persistently devoted to prayer. And so he's calling Christians, obviously these Colossian Christians first, but then all of us to a lifestyle of constant communion with the Father. This is very similar to what Jesus does over in Luke chapter 18. You may recall that great story, that parable that he tells of a widow that got her way with a godless, uncaring judge simply because she stayed after him. And Jesus gave that parable, he said, to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. That's Luke 18, 1. Uh, you also find that this is the pattern of the early church. If you look at Acts chapter 1, they are always praying. And then also a, a kind of similar passage in 1 Thessalonians five seventeen, when Paul tells the Thessalonian church to pray without ceasing. And so I think all of us are probably familiar with these texts, but there's kind of this implicit objection that rises up within us when we hear them, something like this. Well, God, don't you know I have a job? Don't you know that I have kids and I've got a bunch of people driving crazy on Lewisburg Pike this morning trying to get to church? Don't they know that I'm trying to meet with Jesus? And so all these things happen in our lives that can draw us away from fulfilling this? Or can they? And I think part of what we have to do here is we've got to reframe the way we think about prayer if we want to live in light of what Paul is talking about here. Because prayer is not simply folding our hands, closing our eyes, you know, here's the church and there's the steeple and open it up and there's all the people. It's not simply for the quiet moments. It's for all moments. And we get some help here from a couple of different people, and as I always do, I want to acknowledge my debt to the Preach the Word commentary. They're so good at synthesizing lots of Christian resources, but they point out two here that I think really apply to what we're talking about here. The first is a quote from Quaker Thomas Kelly in his Testament of Devotion, and he said, There is a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level at once. On one level, we can be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, meeting all the demands of the external affairs. But deep within, behind the scenes, at a profounder level, we may also be in prayer and adoration, song and worship, and a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings. Don't you like how he talks about that? That you're, you're doing what you got to do. But the operating system running in the background in your mind, to use a tech metaphor, 
is prayer and worship and communion with God. This is right in line with what (coughs) Brother Lawrence has to say in his wonderful work, The Practice of the Presence of God. He says, The time of business does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in his great tranquility as if I were on my knees. So it is possible. And it's not just for super Christians. The kind of fullness in prayer that Paul is calling us toward here is possible for normal Christians like us. And I want to give us some help in just a bit on how to move in that direction, but I want to cast that vision from the text at this point. Now, Paul goes a little further in adding a couple of qualifying demands, if you want to call them that, more like, here's what I want you to do as you pray in this way. The first one is being watchful, and the second one is being thankful. Take a look at it. Being watchful in it, that means staying awake, keeping alert that you're praying, eyes open to the needs around you, seeing what may happen. And also with thanksgiving, this is the same idea where we get our word for communion, and it means to have an attitude of gratitude in our prayers. There's also a great concept in the Old Testament Some of you guys are familiar with this word, maybe others not so much, but it's the concept of the Ebenezer. Uh, This comes from a bunch of different places, but Joshua 4, for example, is one uh, picture of this where Joshua would turn to Gilgal and he gazed upon this stack of stones of remembrance that were taken from the Jordan when God held back the river so that Israel could cross. And so they would pile up these stones as a monument to God's faithfulness. You guys may remember from that song we sing here fairly often, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Here I Raise My Ebenezer. Uh, Also, more modern, you may have run into this, there's a guy named Chris Renzima, or Chris Renzima, depending on how you want to say it. He's got a song called Still Just as Good, and it talks about this same idea. So there are things that we can do that can remind us of God's faithfulness that will well up within us a sense of thanksgiving that is what Paul is calling us to here. So I think the question there becomes, watchful first, then thankful, are we watchful and mindful of the things happening around us? For example, I mentioned one at the start of the service, what's still happening in Ukraine. Every time we think of those folks and we think of the war, we need to pray for that. Also, when we think about Thanksgiving here, we're entering into this season, but what are the little Ebenezers in our lives that point us to how God has been faithful in the past? Maybe where He healed a family member in your life, or maybe where He helped you in some way significantly financially, or He brought you through some horrible time in your marriage or with one of your kids or or what have you. There's all these different things that can be these figurative Ebenezers for us that can remind us to not simply go to God and say, hey, here's the the 10 things I need, X, Y, Z, but also, Lord, thank you for all the wonderful things that you've done. So let's pray at all times, and let's be watchful and thankful as we do it. Now, Paul also goes a step further here. And he says this and gives us our second point. 
to pray also that the gospel would continue to advance. Look at this. He says, at the same time, so he's saying, do what I told you, but add this to it. Pray also for us. And the us that he's talking about here, we're going to get the laundry list of who those individuals were. Uh, we'll see that next week, verses 7 through 18. He gives the uh, roster of who's on his gospel team at this time. And he says to pray something very specific. He says that God would open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. And then also look at this. He says that I would make it clear this is how I ought to speak. So when he says open for us a door for the word, he's talking about that God would grant further opportunity. And the mystery of Christ, he's talking about the gospel there and all the other things that go along with it. And he said, I'm in prison because of this. So the, the way that he's praying for this and the place from which he is praying should be inspirational and challenging to us. Because we're just trying to get through the day and Paul is in jail and he's saying, pray that even here the gospel would advance that I would have further chance to talk about Jesus and all these done. And then that point there of him saying that I would make it clear. Wow, what a good reminder for us as well. And I think it serves us from both a here's what we ought to pray for sense, but it also serves us in how we ought to speak about the gospel ourselves. A couple quotes here as well. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, any fool can learn to write learned language, the vernacular is the real test. If you can't turn your faith into it, then you either don't understand it or you don't believe it. And so in a church like ours where we love and value doctrine and we like to think big thoughts, and we should, no qualification on that. The, the gospel is deep. But at the same time, we should never communicate it in such a way that our children can't understand it, that our neighbors appropriately could understand it. Spurgeon picks up on this as well. He said, Christ said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Some preachers, however, put the food so high that neither the sheep nor the lambs could reach it, and it seems that they have read the text, feed my giraffes. And I think Spurgeon's on to something there. So as a guy who likes to think big thoughts and read heavy books, we must always remember that the big words that come with those big ideas also have to be put in frame where anyone could understand. The gospel needs to be clear. Now, let me say a little bit something, uh, something that I think that might be a bigger danger in our historical moment than putting the cookies too high. In our historical moment, I think the real danger is that the gospel would become garbled because other things get attached to it that are not the gospel. And we've talked about this many times, and we'll continue to talk about this, because I think the real danger in our moment is politics being attached to the gospel and therefore making it unclear. And this is not a partisan thing, because... It happens on both sides of the aisle. Folks from the left and the far left, they do this. Folks from the far right, they do this. 
And what we need to be clear about is here's what the gospel is, all the historic truths of Christianity, and then that informs our politics. That informs the things that we care about. That informs the way that we vote. That informs the way that we think about candidates and worldview issues. But those are implications. They're not the gospel itself. And I fear in our day that what so many people are rejecting isn't so much the gospel, it's this encrusted gospel, which again, it could come from either side. And we need to be very clear that we are communicating what Jesus said and not simply what we or our favorite pundit from whatever news outlet you like has attached to it. So we, like Paul, need to pray for ourselves and for our hearers and for the other preachers out there that the gospel would be clear. All right, so let's make some application here. How do we do this? How do we lean into what Paul is talking about here? Both in prayer of constant prayer and also watchful and thankfulness, but then also this clear gospel co uh, co uh, cooperation, if you want to think of it that way, around the world. Let me give you just a few things. First one, already touched on, you got to expand your knowledge of what prayer is. It isn't simply quiet time in the morning. Now, should we do quiet time in the morning? Yeah, I'm a huge fan. Uh, in the business world, that's what you might call a keystone habit, that if you, you establish that habit in your life of some carved out devotional time, it is going to lead to a greater sense of light and life in other parts of your day. I can't even explain it, but it does. So even if you only got two minutes, start your day with Jesus, and that's going to set you on a course so that when the tyranny of the urgent comes upon you, you're able to still think about Jesus in the midst of it. Another thing I would say, kind of put this under the watchful heading, take advantage of all the things around you. And here's what I mean. Uh, and I don't want to hold myself up as this great example here, but some days are better than others, I'll say that. And sometimes when I'm driving down the road and somebody does something crazy, uh, I usually get frustrated. But then on my better days, I'm like, you know what? I need to pray for that person. I need to pray that they don't injure somebody for whatever shenanigans they were doing, fighting with their kid, messing with their phone, whatever they just pulled out in front of me or whatever. But Lord, protect that person. Help that person. Let that person somehow come to know Jesus. So these moments of frustration can become moments of communion. Let's put this in the context of the workplace. Um, I'm going to make this prophecy you will be frustrated at work sometime before Wednesday, okay? It is going to happen, probably before the end of tomorrow. But why not let that opportunity for frustration also become an opportunity for communion? Deal with it, handle it, whatever needs to happen. But as you're walking away from whatever that is, pray for that situation, Lord, help me to operate like Jesus in these moments. Help this employee that is driving me completely bananas. Help this boss that just can't seem to figure out how the rest of us actually live and work in this world and not in his, you know, unapproachable light. Whatever it is, pray that the Lord would change your heart and use that situation for his glory and for your good. These opportunities are around us all day long. And I think that's part of why Paul includes that word watchful there is because there are going to be 10,000 things that happen every day and every week 
that can be things that we need to pray about. Now, in addition to that, I think the quote that David shared last week from G.K. Chesterton, I've thought about that all week, is particularly helpful, and it, it basically said something like this. What would you do if you knew that the risen Christ was standing behind you at this moment? And his retort is basically like, well, he is. So my life needs to be informed by that. And I wonder how different our prayers would be if we really believe that. That we don't pray simply because we should. We don't pray simply because we're being commanded to. We pray because God is with us. Because He is in the room with us. And we speak to Him and we pour out our hearts to a friend. Now, is He also the creator of the universe? Is He also upholding the world by the word of His power? You better believe it. But He is our friend. And part of the beauty of the incarnation, we're about to enter into this Christmas season in just a few weeks, is that Jesus came and he lived this life. He knows the struggles. He knows the difficulties. And now we can speak to him as our friend because of his full and finished work on our behalf. So when we operate with that kind of applied gospel theology, praying without ceasing, praying continually and persevering, it's going to get easier. Praying with a watchful eye, it's going to get easier. And finally, praying with a thankful heart. Listen, you want to move in the right direction with that? Yes, use those Ebenezer stories that I told you before, the things that God has done in your life. But if you don't have any of those or none readily come to mind, you use the gospel itself. Because if you can't find anything else to be thankful for, you can be thankful for what Jesus did for you. You can be thankful that he did not have to do what he did, and yet he did it joyfully. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And now we who were once aliens and strangers and enemies, now we are friends with God. And friends, that will well up a sense of thankfulness within us a sense of watchfulness within us, and a sense of growth in the area of prayer. Now, finally, what about communicating the gospel to other people? Well, the secret to sharing the gospel with other people is the gospel itself. Because you know the central reason why we don't? It's usually the fear of man. What is this person going to think of me if I take the risk and I say something about Jesus in this moment? Friends, if we are convinced of who we are in Christ and that the truest thing about us is not what this neighbor, not what this friend, not what this family member thinks of us, but what God has already said about us in the gospel, if we are rooted in that, they can say whatever they want. They can think whatever they want. Now, do we need to be cavalier about that and go looking for trouble? Of course not. But when we are rooted in Christ and the gospel reality of who we are in Him is the truest thing about us, it gets easier and easier to talk about Jesus. And let me tell you something else. The things that we're passionate about, that's what we seem to talk about. You find somebody who's a sports fan, doesn't matter what the sport is, it can be croquet for crying out loud. Or actually now, pickleball is apparently the new thing. You find somebody that has just got on to a new hobby, 
and they will wear you out talking about that madness. They just will. But friends, we have the greatest reality in the history of humankind. And the more we know and the more we grow in Jesus, it's just going to get easier to talk about him. Man, let me tell you what Jesus is doing in my life. You, you may not even believe in Jesus, but let me just tell you, here, here's what's happened. I don't know how to explain it. And we just share out of the overflow of our hearts the goodness of what God has done. And then as we're doing that, we think about other people, missionaries, people like Nate out of our own church, working with Somalis and others that we want to pray for in all these different ways. That way when they send in their email, sometimes I don't even have time to open these emails that I get from some of my missionary friends. But I'll just pray a flash prayer right there, whatever I'm doing on my phone. Lord, bless them, give them whatever they need to do what you've called them to do. And then if I'm driving down the road, again, this is a better day, I see a church building. Lord, may they proclaim the gospel and may they make it clear. We disagree about so many different things theologically, but you know what? They've got the historic gospel, and that's what matters most. And I pray that you would bless that church, bless that ministry, and let them make the gospel clear. So in summary, as the gospel takes root in us, and Jesus becomes more precious to us, we will pray more. We will find these opportunities to be thankful, to be watchful, to pray for other proclaimers that they would make it clear. And we would get to see, bit by bit and little by little, what only God can do in response. So that's verses 2 through 4. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Because here Paul goes from praying about outsiders and proclamation to them, to specific directives on how to engage them. Walk in wisdom <coughs> toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So if you take that together in a singular point, it's something like this. Walk in wisdom and grace-seasoned speech toward those outside the faith. Now let's break it down. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. What I think he's saying there is, he's saying, avoid any unnecessary offense in preaching the gospel. Now the gospel in and of itself, the Bible says this, it is going to be a stumbling block for some. We don't have to apologize for that. It's just true. But we don't need to put any additional obstacles in front of the gospel. And that's part of what I was getting at before when I talk about adding other things to the gospel. And here's the thing. It's not just politics. It could be all kinds of crazy legalism. I know, and you probably know as well, there are plenty of splinter groups of Christianity that attach other things to the gospel. Well, you got to wear this kind of clothes, or you can't use this kind of vehicle. we got to ride in a horse and buggy, or got to do this and this and this. And there's all these different kinds of things that get attached to the gospel, which are not the gospel themselves. And I think they put unnecessary roadblocks in the process of people hearing and embracing Jesus. And he's saying, don't do that. He's saying, be circumspect, walk in wisdom 
toward these outsiders. And as you do that, you will be making the best use of time. You got a limited life. You got limited resources. This is how we need to do this. Now, there's a couple other things we need to pay attention to there as well. That word outsiders, that word is important. And that word is countercultural for many people today. Because what most people today, if they hold to anything remotely like historic Christianity, they don't like insider-outsider language. They like kind of what Oprah has to say. And unless she's changed her ideas, her, her idea is something like this, that God is at the top of this mountain, and all of us are taking different paths up the mountain. Some people call it Christianity. Other people take the Buddhism road. Other people Hinduism. But we're going to the same place. Our culture loves that kind of thinking. But here's the problem with that. That's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that there are insiders, people who have turned from their sin and trusted in Christ. They did not do it on their own. They did not work their way in. They did not earn their own salvation. They have come in by grace alone through faith alone. That's it. That's the only way there are any insiders is God's loving intervention in our lives. But then there are people that are not insiders. They're outsiders, people who have not yet come to the place where they've stopped trying to save themselves and they've trusted wholly in Jesus. Those are the only two groups that exist in the world. That's not a popular message, but that is the message of historic Christianity, and it's been that way since the beginning. And so as we wrestle with that word, I think the first question we need to ask ourselves here is which group are we in? Are we insiders or are we still outsiders? And the good news is if you are an outsider today, you can become an insider. And it's not about joining this church. It's not about making sure you agree with everybody in this room. It's about accepting the good news of what Jesus has done for you. It's about admitting that you're a sinner, believing that Jesus lived a perfect life, he died a substitute's death, and he gloriously rose again, and (coughs) confessing your sin and committing your life to follow him. That's how you become an insider. And God is welcoming you, and this church is welcoming you this morning for you to get in on what God has done. And friends, it doesn't matter if you're young or old, anywhere you fall on any spectrum at all, that good news is for you today. And if that strikes a chord with you in just a bit when the rest of us take communion, you hold off, but you take Jesus, and we want to celebrate that with you. But in this concept of outsiders here, it's important for us that our insiders to remember that the outsiders need the gospel. That what Paul was talking about here is important. That he is saying to them and to us, these early Christians, listen, walk in wisdom toward this group of people. That this matters. And then he gives some very concrete ways of how that's to be the case. Look at this. He says, let your speech always be gracious. Literally, that's translated as full of grace. That it has a sense of attractiveness, pleasantness, winsomeness, charm even. And the fact that it's gracious presupposes that grace has already affected the heart. 
That's what Jesus talks about over in Matthew chapter 12, 34, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, that if there's grace in you, it needs to come out of your mouth. That people, they, they may not like everything that you have to say, but there should be something about who you are and how you are that people are like, man, I don't even agree with that guy, but it's hard to hate him or it's hard to hate her because they're smiling and they're friendly and just there's an authenticity about them. Hmm, I don't know what to make of them, but there's something about it. That that's the kind of grace that we should have with people. And it's also interesting here, he goes a step further and he says, seasoned with salt. Now this is a little bit linguistically debated, but this is kind of interesting. It, it could mean wholesomeness, but more likely it means that it has some flavor or life to it. That there's a, one writer said, a scintillating nature, not the dull sanctimonious vocabulary that exists in some church circles. And I, I don't know if you've seen that, but boy, I have. And I think you can kind of take this too far, but most people don't take it far enough. Spurgeon had something to say about this too. This lady came up to him one time and thought he was too witty, and told him so. And he replied and he said, ma'am, if you knew what I didn't let into my sermon, you would not say that. <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth in that, that he would have been a fun guy to be around. And he had many, many critics, many haters, as you might call it today. But there was something about him and the way that he spoke about Jesus and the way that he lived his faith in front of other people that was attractive. It was a, there was a, a sense of gracious speech seasoned with salt. And so I think the simple question there becomes for us, what would outsiders say about us? and the way that we talk about our faith. Now, again, I'm not talking about not taking it seriously. I'm not talking about not speaking with appropriate gravity. I'm talking about, is there any attractiveness in the way that we talk about Jesus? That's the direction that we need to move, and how gracious is it? Now, let me give us just a little help putting some application on what we're talking about here. Let's start first with this concept here of the outsider. First thing we got to remember here is we got to remember just what I said, that there are insiders and there are outsiders. And part of the reason that we are still on the planet is because God has people within our sphere of influence that we need to try to speak to that we need to pray for opportunities to speak to, that we need to pray for them, and we need to be encouraged and challenged by verses like this. Romans 10, 14, and 15 says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And friends, that's not just people like me up here in the front. There's a sense in which all of us are preachers of the gospel to one degree or another. And the people in your spheres of influence, I'll probably never meet them. I'll probably never know them. But in the providence of God, you grew up in that high school and you're still friends on Facebook and you still know that person's aunt or whatever. 
And if God would give us opportunity, may we take it to speak the good news to them. Now, let me also get real concrete about how we can do this kind of in daily life. One writer that uh, I came across at one point, they spoke of personal mission like this, that you do the ordinary things of life with a sense of gospel intentionality and eternal urgency. You do the ordinary things of life with a sense of gospel intentionality and eternal urgency. So you think about all the spheres in which you currently operate. Let's start right at your feet, your home. You want that home to be, just like what we talked about a few weeks ago, a gospel greenhouse that we are constantly evangelizing one another with the good news of Jesus. Now, particularly for those who have little kids who've not yet come to the place where they put their faith and trust in Jesus, listen, you, you got a tent revival right there in your house. You're surrounded by outsiders that don't yet know Christ. Keep talking to them about Jesus. Keep bringing them to church. Pray for those kids. And let's see the Lord work in their hearts. But I don't know about you guys, but the gospel isn't just for unbelievers. It's also for believers. And I know I need to hear it from my wife, from my kids, as we go through our daily life. And so in our home, we still seek to engage in that gospel greenhouse mentality. But let's think about the other spheres as well. In your neighborhood, the people around you, the houses directly around you. Number one, do you know them? And number two, do you know where they're coming from spiritually? What we've tried to do in our house, uh, we try to get to know them right when they first move into the neighborhood. It's a little less awkward there. Try to have them over, figure out where they're coming from. It usually comes up fairly quickly that part of what I do is being a pastor. And so it kind of makes a little bit of an inroad. Oh, you go to this church. Oh, okay, whatever. Is there any kind of pattern and plan in your life to similarly engage with folks? Sometimes I will go to neighborhood events that, to be honest with you, I don't even really want to go to. But I'm there in part because I want to get into conversations with people to try to engage them about Jesus. Same thing at work. I know that's trickier, particularly in the modern world, but get to know your coworkers. Go out to lunch, hear their story, hear where they're coming from. Another thing that helped us, particularly when my kids were very young, but we still do this now, somebody is involved in some kind of activity or sport. You could be doing drama or band or soccer or cross country, whatever it is. And one of the things we've always tried to instill in our kids is you're there to do that thing, okay? So let's do it excellently. Let's do it in the light of what we talked about last week as unto the Lord and not unto men. But that's not the only reason that you're there. You're also there to be a light to these people, to engage them with the gospel as best we can, to let them get to know our family. Let me, let me meet their parents. And we are in this together seeking to do exactly what Paul is talking about here. To speak to these people with speech that is gracious and seasoned with salt. And then the final thing, look at this. He says, and this is a purpose, so do this so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So do all of this to create the foundation so that when they ask you questions, 
and or you just verbally get to speak to them about Jesus, you know how to answer, and I love the specificity here, each person. Because I, I don't know what your experience has been with this, but every person has different baggage when it comes to Christianity. Every once in a while, I mean, but this is like Willy Wonka's golden ticket. Every once in a while, I'll find somebody that thinks it's good that I'm a pastor. It's rare, but it happens. But most people, they're not like that. You can immediately see their countenance change when they find out that's what I do. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be fun. And so the next little bit in that conversation, I'm trying to convince them that I'm not a serial killer or a charlatan or I'm just kind of like them, but Jesus is doing something different over here in my life, you know? But, but here's what I also know about each person. In addition to that baggage, there's often some kind of specific pain. And I have found that being able to take Jesus to their specific pain is helpful in my proclamation of the gospel. Now, could I just roll up and give them kind of the standard script? I could. I got many standard scripts that I've memorized over the years. But I think it's better if I speak specifically to what's going on in their life. That you may know how to answer each person. And sometimes the, the way that you do this, it's really more about listening than it is speaking. Because if you let somebody talk, they'll usually tell you what's going on. They will give you clues to their specific baggage and their specific pain. And for most of us, it's not going to be one five to seven minute conversation. It's over time that as we build these relationships, we're entering into this world now with Sophie where we're on this lacrosse team and we're getting to know these people and what they're about. And I'm going to be seeing those people. Lorianne's going to be seeing those people on a regular basis for the next few months. And so we are praying and we are listening for opportunities to be able to engage each person specifically. And it takes hearing to be able to do that. Let me also say this to you too. You might say, okay, well, the part of that that freaks me out the most is that they're going to have any kind of question at all because I'm not a scholar. I don't know this. I don't know how to answer their questions. L let, me, let me say this. Number one, most people are not going to pull up and ask you about dinosaurs and Noah's Ark. They're just not. Okay, They're not going to ask you about whether or not there's life on other planets or exactly how old the earth is. So a lot of times, a lot of the questions that we fear, they're phantom fears. And so most people, if they are willing to hear you talk about Jesus at all, that's a huge win. And let me give you this amazing phrase that might help you here when you do run into one of those questions. I don't know, okay? Your pastor has given you permission to look at them in full confidence and say, I don't know the answer to that question, but here's what I do know. Remember that story in the Gospels where they got this guy and he, he was blind and he said, I don't know all this about Jesus, but I know this. I couldn't see and now I could. Just the simplicity of that testimony just cuts through so much difficulty and darkness in today's world. Because at the end of the day, the authentic life that has been changed by God, it kind of doesn't matter what your politics are. It kind of doesn't matter 
what somebody else did that was awful somewhere else. We're not talking about scandals way over here in some other denomination. We're talking about you and one person, and you have been changed by Jesus, and you're speaking to them graciously. You've been praying constantly and watchfully and for other proclaimers, and now you're answering their questions in the moment. And you know what happens when that happens? God meets you. He meets you in a way that is unexplainable, in a way that goes beyond yourself, in a way that shows you what only God can do. And then as you get to know Him, and you get to keep talking to Him about Jesus, you'd be like, man, I go to this church. They don't have it all figured out either. But man, they're trying. And we're on this journey together, seeking to make disciples that make disciples. And they'd love to have you be a part of it. Come with me. Come with me sometime. Or there's this gift exchange that's coming up for the ladies. And I know you don't really go to church, but you seem like you like presents. Most people do. So why don't we go and we do this thing and you get to meet some of these people. You'll see they're not weirdos, unless you think I'm a weirdo. But then you'll get to engage them, not just with you, but with your whole community. And then it becomes a group project of reaching out to this person and not simply your solo fishing expedition. And you know what happens when you do that? God meets you. And he meets all of us. And we collectively get to see what only God and I just think that's what we all want. That's what we all want. We want to pray in the way that Paul talked about here. Consistently, persistently, watchfully, thankfully for other proclaimers that we ourselves would make the gospel clear, that we would be able to speak to these people graciously, that we would have an interesting presentation that we could answer their particular questions and pain and we point them all to Christ. Friends, that's what we want. So I want to end our time together by praying and asking that that's what God would do among us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come this morning and this is one of those messages where we're both encouraged and convicted. Because every one of us in this room, we want to pray more. We want to speak more effectively. We want to be less fearful. We want to be more convinced of the good news of the gospel. And Lord, we can't do any of those things apart from you. But we know that you are the vine. And you will give life to branches that struggle like us. So Lord, we bring us all to you this morning, and we ask for your help. We ask for what only you can do in our prayer lives, in our sharing lives, and just in our lives in general. And we thank you in advance that you will act and you will help, and we will indeed see what only you can do. In Jesus' name.